I invite you, if you'd like to turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, we're going to look at verses 24 down through uh, verses, uh, verse 31. We'll read those and uh, consider those same verses this morning. All right, before we uh, read the passage and take a look at it, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we know that when we get to heaven, we're going to see things much more clearly and We'll be able to praise and to worship you, to know you uh, in a way that we in this world uh, cannot yet attain to. But we ask that to the extent uh, that your name would be glorified, you would reveal to us things which we don't yet know and have not been aware of, that you would remind us of truths that we have known before but need reminders of, and that you would make clear during our time that you're the God who is to be worshiped and glorified and Jesus Christ is indeed your son and that by believing in him, we have life in his name. So we pray that you'll do this all through the powerful work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. John chapter 20 at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and put my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. <clears throat> Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone listening uh, in, uh, I'd like to uh, draw your attention to verses 30 and 31 to sort of start before we look in depth at uh, uh, Thomas and the Lord's revelation of himself to Thomas. And if you look at verse 30, you'll notice the language in your ESV translations. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. The word is often translated, therefore, it's just a, a straightforward word for therefore. So we might translate verse 30, therefore, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. And so what John is saying to us, what the Holy Spirit is communicating, is that the purpose of John's book, one of the purposes, but arguably the main purpose, is to do exactly what just happened to Thomas. That we would move from doubting Jesus as the Messiah, doubting him as the Savior of the world, into believing him, no longer unbelieving, but believing that indeed Jesus is the Christ, he's risen from the dead, and we can have life in his name through that faith. So John is telling us, look, therefore, on account of what just happened to Thomas, uh, that's why I have written the book, so that others may have the exact same result. 
And John's entire gospel is first and foremost evangelistic. That's what he's telling us here, that people would come to know that Jesus is the Messiah and that they would have eternal life through the Lord Jesus. Now, if you take a look at what John writes, he says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Although Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, these things are written. What is he saying? There's many other things that Jesus did. Now, whether that's a reference to his entire public ministry, which I think it is, or whether it's a reference just to his post-resurrection appearances that he gave to his disciples after he resurrected, which some believe, regardless of what we think, there's much more that Jesus did in his, in his, in his ministry to his disciples and to the world around him. But John has selected, the Holy Spirit has selected these certain things so that we might come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and have life in his name. So John wrote so that we who are not physically present to see Jesus' life and ministry and to see him after his resurrection could come to believe that he's the Christ. He's the one that we're to look for. And beloved, we've got to believe this, that there's no one, there is nothing else other than Jesus Christ who is sent from God to save. That's what John's writing to us. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing and communicating to us this gospel along with the entire Bible. That if we found Jesus, we found the one who can save and give us eternal life. If we found Jesus, we found everything. Without Jesus, we have nothing. But Jesus is the Christ. And thus, if we believe in him, we have life in his name. So let me ask you, are you convinced of that? Are we still searching are we still looking around for a different Messiah? Do we believe in him? It's a very simple aim John has. And I want to ask us to make sure that indeed we have stopped searching. We've come to believe and come to the conviction that Jesus is the hope of the world. God's promised anointed one who would come and save. And that we actually believe in him and have life in him. Now, as a side note, this makes John's gospel a great read for those who uh, may not know the Lord. For those who are interested in the Christian faith or who are interested in Christianity, John just flat out says, hey, I've written this gospel. This gospel is written so that people may come to know who Jesus is. And that having come to know who Jesus is, they can believe in him. And something else, believers are also greatly benefited. Our faith is shored up. I trust that as you've gone through this study, I know I can say this personally, that we've come to see that uh, what the Holy Spirit has laid out is just so much historical, credible evidence that Jesus is the Christ. And that having seen that evidence and considered it, we are even more sure now than we were before the Gospel of John started that indeed he is the Savior and that there is no one else who can give us life and cause us by his work to dwell in the presence of God forever in heaven. Now, I want us to take a look at uh, the account of Thomas and notice three things in Jesus' ministry to Thomas. Remember, Jesus is resurrected. He's ministering to various people groups, and now he's coming to minister to the doubter-in-chief, Thomas himself. I want us to notice the problem of doubt Jesus' ministry to remove our doubts, and then the result of Jesus' ministry. So first, the problem of doubt, verse 25 in the passage. The other disciples told Thomas, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails 
and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, just as a little bit of backstory here, Thomas is usually uh, the scapegoat for, <laughs> for the disciples. He's the one who gets tons of blame for his disbelief and his doubt. But we should remember uh, that uh, when the other disciples heard that Jesus rose again from Mary Magdalene, these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them, Luke 24, verses 9 through 11. So the other disciples had heard the women say, uh, look, Jesus is risen. <laughs> they did not believe him. They did not believe the ladies. So they went back to the tomb and were told, John 20, verse 8, that uh, uh, John saw and he believed, but it took him going to the tomb. It took Peter going to the tomb as well. So they all doubted the resurrection. No one was even anticipating a resurrection. And when they first heard of it, they disbelieved. It seemed, yeah, that's just ridiculous. There is no way that Jesus rose from the dead. Something else to note about uh, what is going on with Thomas, Jesus appeared to his disciples that first Easter morning, the third day, that Sunday. Thomas was not with them. We don't know where he was. There's a lot of ink that's been spilled and speculating where he might have been, but he wasn't with them. So the other disciples had already seen the Lord. The Lord had already appeared to them. So they're now convinced that he's risen. Thomas is not yet convinced because he has not yet seen the Lord. So it's not at all surprising that Thomas would be the only doubter left among them because he has not yet seen the risen Lord. Likely he's gone to the tomb, likely he's seen the empty tomb, but he has not yet seen the risen Lord. Now, that said, that all the disciples were originally doubters and did not believe in the resurrection, Thomas is set apart from them in particularly two ways. He won't believe the other disciples. The other disciples, all 10 of them, with whom he had served and been eyewitnesses of Jesus' public ministry, all 10 of them said, we've seen the Lord. <laughs> Sometime between that first Easter morning and this next Sunday, which based on how the Jews would count days, eight days later would be, we're, we're on the next Lord's day. Sometime between them, the disciples had been telling Thomas over and over and over again, look, we've seen the Lord. But he would not believe them. And Thomas required the most evidence of everyone. He said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Going to the empty tomb was enough for some of them to believe. Seeing Jesus was enough for them to believe. But Thomas says, I need to do better than that. I need to actually touch and put my fingers in. That's why he is called the doubter in chief because he needs more evidence by his own profession uh, than the others needed. Thomas was no doubt, indeed, a doubter. And I want us to move next then into Jesus' ministry to remove our doubts. What did Jesus do to turn Thomas around? The first thing he did is he provided peace to remove Thomas' doubts. Eight days later, verse 26, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came in and stood among them and said, peace be with you. We noticed last time that twice Jesus said, peace be with you, as he was commissioning his disciples to go out into the world and proclaim forgiveness of sins, where it can be found, and to proclaim as well that if you don't believe in Jesus, your sins are not forgiven. 
He said twice, peace be with you. Now here's the third time he's saying that, peace be with you, in the context of giving Thomas evidence that indeed he is risen. Why did Jesus pronounce peace upon the disciples again? Number one, because they need it. And I don't think it's an accident that the epistles, like we looked at last time, Paul's letters begin with grace to you and peace. It's God's constant reassurance to us that through Christ, peace has been made between God and his people. We need this all the time, beloved. Because by nature, it's so easy for us to start thinking that God's against us. Because life in a fallen world, if you look simply at providence, you might conclude, yeah, God is against me. I'm sick. My job isn't going like I want it to. I was just in the middle of a tornado. Uh, whatever the case may be, it's easy to conclude this. And so God comes to us continually and says, look, between you and me, there is peace on account of the work of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's another reason why Jesus pronounces peace, and that's because Thomas needed it. If you go back to John 11, Jesus said to his disciples, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas was ready to go die. <laughs> They're going to go after Jesus. They can come after us. We'll just die with him. But when the testing came and Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and then betrayed and then on trial, where was Thomas? Along with all the rest of them, walking away, heading out. John was at the cross indeed, but all the rest of them were at a long distance. So Thomas has a problem on his hands, just like the other disciples do. I've really deserted Jesus. In fact, when his other disciples were together on that Easter morning, I wasn't even there. I'd maybe given up the cause. And so Thomas needs reassurance from the Lord Jesus Christ that he loves even his deserting disciples. Even those who betrayed him or abandoned him, even those who weren't there at Jesus' greatest time of need. Doubting God is a sin, beloved. Doubt is a form of unbelief. And what each doubter needs to know is that the sin of doubt is forgiven by the Lord. And Jesus comes to Thomas and says, as it were, look, your doubt is forgiven. Your former walking away from me is forgiven. Even your disbelief is forgiven. J.C. Ryle, commenting on Thomas, wrote, The Holy Spirit knew well that the dull and the slow and the stupid and the doubting are by far the commonest type of disciples in this evil world. The Holy Spirit has taken care to supply abundant evidence that Jesus is rich in patience as well as compassion and that he bears with the infirmities of all his people. Our Lord has many weak children in his family, many dull pupils in his school, many raw soldiers in his army, many lame sheep in his flock. Yet he bears with them all and casts none away. Let me update this for our day here. God the Father has sent God the Son into the world as the sin bearer, the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of his people. He's given up his only begotten Son to be our substitute. Jesus has come into this world in order to obey the decree of his Father and to go all the way to the cross, perfectly obeying the law, to stand in our place and bear our judgment. And he was resurrected on the third day and is now ascended. And the Holy Spirit has given new hearts to God's people and brought them from death to life. And God has done all this for us 
And yet, how often isn't it the case that we doubt his goodness? We doubt God's mercy. We doubt whether any of this is even real. God has done it in history for all the world to see. And we, his weak children, Thomas included, will so often doubt the goodness, the mercy, the veracity, the truth, the historical outworking of God's purposes and his love for us. And in case we might portray doubting as not really sinful, Jesus makes it clear that doubting is sinful. Verse 27, do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas doubt, Jesus just calls it, look, you're disbelieving. <laughs> he says, believe. Our doubts of God's goodness, our doubts of God's power is unbelief, beloved. We believe, help our unbelief. We need to be forgiven of this, just as Thomas did. Now, I know there are many of us here who doubt God's love for us because we've not had a great week of obedience, likely. It's often the case. I have that testimony. I'm sure many of us do. I've heard us say it. It's just the course of the Christian life. Yeah, I don't know if God really loves me. I've had a really bad week of sin, and I doubt that he's good enough to forgive even this past week. Again, we're doubting the mercy and the love of God. It's not to discount the fact that we should repent of our sins. But it is to discount, beloved, God's love for us and his ability to forgive. It's so easy for us to doubt. Let Jesus minister to you, beloved. We're not saved by the strength of our obedience. We're saved through the Lord Jesus Christ. So the second uh, uh, way Jesus ministers to Thomas is uh, through fellowship. So Thomas was noticeably absent from the other 10 disciples on the occasion of the week before. And we could spend time speculating as to why he was absent, but uh, um, we know that he was. And now he's present with the disciples on the following Lord's Day. And it's in this context that Jesus actually ministers to Thomas and comes to him and removes his doubts and gets him to confess, my Lord and my God. Now, I want to uh, briefly touch on this, although I want to make the point rather strongly. There's been a lot of ink spilled on this too, and I don't want to overstate it. But let me suggest to us that sometimes we can view church as, well, I've, I've just got to go do it. It's, I've got to I'll go through the motions. It's something I've always done. Maybe I saw my parents done. I'm in the habit of doing it. There's nothing else better to do. I'm not creative enough to find some other kind of fun. Let's just go to church. Some people go to church for those reasons. But let me suggest to you as I've been learning myself and suggesting to myself that getting together with other believers to worship the Lord each Sunday is a necessary part of our spiritual growth to help us even overcome our doubts, to let Jesus Christ minister personally. He shows up in our midst just as he showed up through that locked door in the disciples' midst when we get together with other believers and to worship him. Missing out on worship of the Lord isn't just disobedient to his command, but is spiritually destructive for our souls. And I can't tell you how often I had heard in Springfield, Missouri, the testimony of people who say, I'm a believer. Where's your church home? I don't have one. And their testimony is filled with doubts, backslidings, tons of unbelief. And they can't see the disconnect between worshiping with God's people where his word is proclaimed where his word indeed is taken seriously and Christ is proclaimed and other people are singing God's praises and crying out to God and praying to him, they can't see that missing out on that would actually leave them isolated in an entire world full of doubt 
And none of those doubts are necessarily going to be alleviated or even ministered to apart from fellowship with God's people. So, beloved, imagine what life would be like to never read personally, to never hear publicly proclaimed the Gospel of John or any of the rest of Scriptures. My suggestion, my guess, is that most of us here would sit here filled with doubt as isolated Christians, wondering if this is even real, because we have not placed ourselves in the midst where Jesus Christ personally ministers to his people. It's not the only place he ministers to us personally, but it's one of the main ones when we gather together with his people on the Lord's day. It's such a wonderful thing that we gather together. When we do it, the Lord is with us. He meets us. He ministers to us. And let me ask this. When we come to church, do we have the expectation we come to church? I guess when we get together to worship, whatever term we want to use, when we get together, do we have the expectation that Jesus Christ is not only personally with us, but here to minister to us by his Holy Spirit? Because he is. And it ought to be the case that we come with that expectation. Something else that I found interesting in studying this is that the other 10 disciples in that room didn't need any more proof that Jesus was risen. Thomas did. Do you see the personal way that Jesus ministered to Thomas, even though the others didn't necessarily need that particular ministry? And again, it is so interesting that oftentimes, at least I find this present with myself, We'll be sitting in a worship service, and we may not have been the ones ministered to in a way that we can tell or that was mind-blowing, but somebody else was personally ministered to. Or maybe we're sitting in a worship service and Christ is ministering to us so powerfully. We have no idea if anybody else is ministered to, but Jesus ministered to us. Beloved, that is so often how God works. So I can't stress enough the importance of being among God's people. It's not a magic show. It's not like a place where there's tons of glitz and glamour, there shouldn't be. It's just God's people getting together to sing praises to him, to pray, uh, to, to give to his kingdom, to hear his word to us. And by that, we are so often encouraged and grown. Uh, something, uh, another way uh, Jesus ministers to Thomas, but even to us, I would say, is the life change that takes place in Thomas and the disciples when they see Jesus. Thomas and all the disciples were not anticipating a resurrection. Thomas was a massive doubter. He was a skeptic, capital S. You are not going to convince Thomas that Jesus has risen from the dead, or it was going to be very, very hard. He said, if I don't get these exact things, I will never believe. That's pretty strong language. And yet, this incredible doubter turned into one who indeed believed and said, my Lord and my God. He was completely turned around. Seeing skeptics turn into full-fledged believers is powerful evidence, beloved, that indeed Jesus is risen from the dead. You can think of, we we know this from real-life experience. Think of Abby Johnson, a former pro-choicer. I think she was part of 22,000 abortions. Then she actually saw one, saw the murder of it, and then she became a pro-lifer par excellence. Uh, supporting that ministry. Lee Strobel, an adamant atheist, 
started looking into the history of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the life and ministry of Jesus, and seeing everything that was there became a massive proponent. Beloved, we're seeing the exact same thing happen in the life of the disciples. And that's not meaningless. Doubters, skeptics, no way Jesus rose again, nobody anticipating it. All of a sudden, what caused them to turn around? Well, either they all believed a myth together and then died on account of that myth, which is ridiculous, or they actually saw the risen Jesus Christ. And seeing him, they couldn't but conclude one thing. He's risen. He is the Messiah. He's the Lord. Indeed, he's the one that we're going to serve for the rest of our lives. And then Jesus ministers to Thomas in another way. He provides evidence. So verse 27, Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. While Thomas is with them, four things take place. We're not sure which of these four things actually caused Thomas to stop doubting and believe, or maybe it was a combination of a few of them or all four things. But at some point, on account of these four things, Thomas turned around. Number one, Jesus enters through the locked door and stood among them. Now, mere human beings can't walk through locked doors. This is not possible. This is confirmed every single day on the basis of science. The very fact that there was a door to this room testifies that the people in that society believed ordinary human beings cannot walk through doors. So you install doors to get into rooms. The fact that the doors were locked in order to keep the Jews out testifies that the disciples believe ordinary human beings cannot just walk through walls or locked doors to reach them. Why were doors locked? Ordinary human beings can't walk through do locked doors. We're safe. So it's only logical to say, well, if human beings can't walk, if mere human beings can't walk through locked doors and walls and doors keep people out, if Jesus can just come through them, he is something other than a mere ordinary human being. And that, along with some other things, may have struck Thomas. Would have been interesting to be a fly on the wall to see their faces the first time and also Thomas's face. Then Jesus spoke. The second thing that Jesus does is he spoke, peace be with you. Now the sheep know the shepherd's voice. Jesus made that crystal clear. All the sheep, my sheep, the sheep of my fold, when I speak, they know my voice. And the shepherd speaks. And this could have been another piece of evidence that caused Thomas to all of a sudden stop his doubting and believe. And then Jesus did something, and this is maybe the most powerful thing that Jesus did to minister to Thomas. Uh, if you look at what Thomas said and overlay it with what Jesus said to Thomas, here's what we get. Thomas, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails. Jesus, put your finger here and see my hands. Thomas, and place my hand into his side. Jesus, put out your hand and place it in my side. Thomas, I will never believe. Jesus, do not disbelieve but believe. Now, if you're Thomas, you might be thinking, he just read my mind. He heard what I said to the other disciples when they told me we've seen the Lord. Whoa. Now, we know previously from John's gospel that Jesus knows the thoughts in men's minds. He knows the thoughts of people's hearts. Jesus knows what is taking place all over the world without his being physically, bodily present. Thomas, no doubt, knew that, but now he's experiencing that reality. Jesus takes what he said and tells Thomas, 
go for it. I'm going to minister exactly to you as you need to be ministered to. How is Thomas going to believe? He's got to see Jesus. Jesus appears to him. This is incredible and actually tells him to touch him. And then the fourth way that Jesus ministers to Thomas doubts with evidence is he's standing among him just in appearance, letting Thomas soak it in. This is maybe the most obvious thing. How is Jesus proving and providing evidence that he's risen from the dead? He's just standing there in body. (laughs) His very presence proves that he is indeed risen from the dead. Now, again, we don't know what pushed Thomas over the edge to finally stop doubting, but something did. One of those four things or a combination of them or all of them. And we don't know if Thomas obeyed Jesus' command to put his finger in his hands and Jesus' hands inside. Jesus said, put your hands here, put your fingers here. We don't know if Thomas obeyed it. John does not tell us whether or not Thomas uh, did that. But we do know that John does record that Thomas believed and that whatever Jesus provided him was enough for him. Now, I'm guessing that we might be asking how evidence plays into the removal of our doubts today. Since Jesus is no longer bodily with us on this earth, we can't just go physically touch him, put our fingers in his hands and in his side. So let me just walk through some of the ways that we can work through our doubts. Number one, we can look at the resurrection evidence in the scriptures. Jesus appeared to his disciples. They were not expecting a resurrection. They were expecting, including Mary Magdalene, the other Mary Joanna, they were expecting to go to the tomb and anoint a dead body. Nobody was expecting this. Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And what is the testimony of the Bible? What is the testimony of even non-Christian writings is that, yes, Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. In fact, the resurrection has been called by many scholars as the most well-attested and historically verifiable thing that's happened in all of human history. So just read the scriptures. That's one way uh, to um, be assured and to get evidence that indeed Jesus rose from the dead and to alleviate our doubts. Second, understand the blessing Jesus pronounces on those who cannot see him. Verse 29, Jesus said, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus is already prophesying and predicting that he's going to be ascended in heaven, reigning at God's right hand, which he currently is. And there's going to be a lot of people who are no longer able to see him. And so he says, blessed are those, he pronounces a blessing on those, us sitting here in Pella, who will never have the opportunity to see him. And yet, on account of faith, believe in Jesus. Jesus is predicting that will happen. And so that's another uh, way that we can be encouraged on evidence. There are other people who believe, though they haven't seen Jesus Christ. Indeed, he does live. We can also look for the evidence of his personal ministry in our lives. And I don't want to go too far into this, because now we're moving from the historical, which is what Thomas is dealing with, to the subjective and the personal in our lives. But what are the marks of Jesus' personal ministry in the life of someone who belongs to him? It's no longer a bodily showing up, in a locked room, but it is love for God and other believers, 1 John. It is growth in humility, Philippians 2. It is fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. It is growth in godliness. Do we have any fruit in our lives at all? I'm, I'm not talking a massive amount, any at all. That is a mark of Jesus' personal ministry to us. 
And then the final evidence uh, that we are provided with is in the scriptures. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, Peter writes this, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Notice Peter did not say, Oh, I wish that every single one of you could have been there on the Mount of Transfiguration and could have been an eyewitness. What does he draw our attention to? The Word. You remember Luke 16, Lazarus and the rich man? The rich man, hey, if someone rises from the dead, my brothers, my family members, they'll believe. And Jesus says, no, they won't. They've already got Moses. They've got the Word. Beloved, what's the greatest evidence that we have that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead? Where can we discover this? The very word. You'd be surprised how many people, both believer and unbeliever, continue to live in doubt and unbelief. All the meanwhile, refusing to read the Bible. Just won't do it. A lot of believers, a lot of us struggling sometimes. A lot of believers all over the world, I just have so many doubts. Do you ever read the Bible? No, not really. Do you have any devotional times? No, not really. Again, I'm not saying, oh yeah, we need to set aside 20 minutes a day to read the Bible and five and a half minutes of prayer and whatever the case may be and fasting this often. Uh Uh-uh. But if we have no intake of the Word of God, it shouldn't surprise us that indeed, that being the evidence that Jesus Christ has written, has risen from the dead, it shouldn't surprise us that we live a life filled with so many doubts. And then finally, the result of Jesus' ministry. Verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Now, Thomas says four things. He says, Jesus is Lord. He says, Jesus is God. He says, Jesus is my Lord and Jesus is my God. This is quite a declaration. Kyrios, Jesus is Lord. Remember, it was common in the days of uh, the Romans. You'd say, Kaiser, Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. And here is Thomas declaring Indeed, Jesus is Lord. Remember, it was the Jews and the Pharisees who previously said, we have no king but Caesar. And here's Thomas saying, oh, no, 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 no. There's a king and his name is Jesus. And he says, Jesus is God. Now, John's going back full circle to where he started in the beginning. The word was with God and the word was God. And here's Thomas declaring, indeed, that is the case. Jesus is God. And then he says, not just that Jesus is Lord and God, but he's my Lord and my God. He's the Lord I'm going to serve. He's my master. And he as well is my God whom I'm going to worship. That is what we're all heading toward. That is our aim. That we would come to see Jesus as Lord and God. But not just that, that he would be my Lord whom I'm going to serve. The great Lord who laid down his life for me the one who purchased me with the price and now whom I glorify with my body and my God whom I'm going to worship and whom I'm going to praise forever. Let me conclude with just a note to those who might not believe or people that we encounter who don't believe because that is a thrust of John's gospel and I don't want to discount that or pass it by here. 
J.C. Ryle said men are continually doing things on no other ground than the report of others and their own unbelief that this report is probably true. The very principle on which they are incessantly acting in the affairs of their bodies, their families, their money, is the principle on which they refuse to act in the affairs of their souls. In the things of this world, they believe all sorts of things which they have not seen and only know to be probable, and they act on their belief. In the things of the eternal world, they say they can believe nothing which they do not see and refuse the argument of probability altogether. Never, in fact, was there anything so unreasonable and inconsistent as rationalism, so-called. Let me, let me just tease this out a little bit. If we want to use bare logic to talk about the validity of Christianity, here's some logic. Human beings cannot perform miracles. I think we'd all agree with that. Therefore, someone who performs miracles must be God. John has recorded seven signs. He's recorded Jesus' miracles. The other gospel writers recorded two. Jesus performed many miracles during his entire public ministries, and they were done in public under the scrutiny of his greatest enemies, and nobody denied the validity that indeed he does some miracles. The only logical conclusion is what? Jesus is no mere human being. He's God. That's exactly what Thomas concluded. Jesus is God. And if we want to use historical proof, look, if we were to prove infallibly to people who live 500 years from now that we existed, how would we pull that off? Just think about it for a minute. Mental experiment. If you wanted to prove, if I wanted to prove to people 500 years from now that, yep, Zach existed, or fill in your name, you existed, how would you do it? We might make sure that the hospital, which has our birth certificate, uh, that those certificates are stored in a vault. We might want to go make a thousand copies of that and put those copies in safety deposit boxes all over the world, in banks all over the world, in case one nation fails. We might actually want to get together like 12 people who can follow us around and be eyewitnesses and maybe even write books and spread those books all around the world saying, indeed, yes, this person existed. And what would you think of those people then who 500 years from now said, well, the hospital made up their birth record. It was a scam. Somebody spread a thousand of these birth certificates all over. It was just a scam. People were in it collectively. And all those books that they wrote, maybe they just saw an illusion. Maybe this person actually really didn't exist and they were all just in it for the money or some other reason. What would you conclude about somebody who 500 years from now, seeing all this evidence, said, nope, they actually didn't believe? You would conclude they were nuts. We'd have to conclude that is ridiculous. How can you prove that you exist then? Well, by that standard, you can't. Oh, beloved, we know that people exist. The entire world around us knows Socrates, Plato, Aristotle existed. They see it in their writings. They know George Washington was the first president of the United States, though they were not there when he was president. But when it comes to matters of religion, it's understandable that people often say, oh, no, you can't prove that because all man-made religions are myths. They are figments of men's imaginations furthered by the devil produced by the father of lies. What if the only true religion is different? And it's not a myth, but it's actually history, worked out in history, verifiable in history. What if that's Christianity? Because it is. And our claim is not just that, oh yeah, God is on the throne. Our claim is that God works in history. And our claim is that you could verify God's acts through history. 
And our claim is we believe that Jesus came out of that tomb and that he's coming back in real history to get us. That is what we believe as Christians, and God has shown that to the entire world. So anyone who doesn't want to believe it is illogical. Anyone who doesn't want to believe it is unscientific. And anyone who doesn't believe it is just ignorant of history, world history, redemptive history. So let none of us here think, oh yeah, we're going to go into the world. This Christianity is great. It's, it doesn't matter if it's a myth or not. Oh no, we're the only ones by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, that's it, who actually know what real history has been. And we believe it. Let's pray.